Tucked inside a controversial new anti-riot law in Florida is a tiny provision that will let the state take over local governments for some decisions about policing. Governor Ron DeSantis has signed the bill into law, and it's a move that has some people sounding alarms about the health of our democracy in the state of Florida. This is probably one of the worst overreaches of power I've seen in a very long time. Every year, lawmakers in Florida meet in Tallahassee to propose and pass new laws, present a budget, and represent their communities in the state capitol. And in recent years, that agenda has included a targeted focus, keeping towns and cities from making too many of their own rules, rules that could end up influencing policy around the state. This is Tallahassee Takeover from WLRN News. I'm Danny Rivero. Republicans hold all of the levers of power in Florida. They have the governor's mansion. They have control of the House of Representatives and the Florida Senate. And a clear majority of state judges were appointed by Republicans. It means that for Democrats, the only real place they still have power is at the local level. Miami-Dade County, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando, Tampa, Tallahassee, Gainesville, they're all places with Democratic leadership. But what happens when the state chips away at the ability of those places to make decisions the state might disagree with? And what's the overall impact of eroding the little bits of local power that a political opposition has? It's something that's happened a lot in Latin America and in other places that have seen a rise in authoritarianism. Tim Paget covers the Americas for WLRN and has spent decades reporting on, reporting in, and living in Latin America. Tim, you recently talked with Antonio Ledesma. Who is he and what's his story? Antonio Ledesma was an opposition leader in Venezuela who was elected as the mayor of municipal Caracas in Venezuela in 2008. Uh, the then president of Venezuela at that time, the socialist strongman Hugo Chavez, was not happy about that. And he went on a rant about Ledesma a few days later in front of supporters. And that's Chavez calling him a plague on the country. And after that rant, he had his loyal National Assembly pass a law, essentially stripping Ledesma of all his powers as mayor of Caracas. Ledesma had to leave City Hall. He had his budget slashed. And he told me all about this from Madrid, Spain, where he now lives in exile. The thing is, in 2013, the same year Chavez died and was replaced by Chavez's loyal protege, Nicolas Maduro, who is still president today in Venezuela. In that year, voters defiantly re-elected Ledesma as the mayor of Caracas. And so two years later, in 2015, the regime ordered his arrest. Bundled out of his office, accused of involvement in a U.S.-backed coup attempt. The mayor of Venezuela's capital, Caracas, Antonio Ledesma, has been detained amid dramatic scenes captured on camera. Supporters and fellow... They claimed that he was plotting with the United States to overthrow the Maduro regime. No evidence was ever really presented uh, to back up that charge. And two years later, in 2017, Ledesma escaped house arrest and fled, as I said, uh, eventually to Spain. And then in a separate case, also in Venezuela, we have the case of David Smolansky. 
Tim, what can you tell us about his case? Well, it's very similar to Ledesma's. He, too, was an opposition leader, although much younger. He was only 27 when he was elected mayor of this uh, particular borough of Caracas called El Atillo. And he, too, was a very strong opponent of the Chavista regime, the socialist revolution regime that Hugo Chavez had founded back in 1999, in which uh, Nicolas Maduro was now running. Uh, he was elected mayor of that borough, El Atillo of Caracas, in, in 2013, and he wanted to run uh, his local government in a way that was contrary to the socialist regime that uh, that was in power at the federal level at that time. And one of the things that stood out was that he started enacting anti-crime reforms. Caracas, even at that time, had one of the worst violent crime rates in the world. And Smolansky's reforms in El Atillo made the central government look bad because he was so successful. And specifically, what kind of things was Mayor Smolansky doing to the police in his municipality that was not necessarily what the central government was doing? Well, like Ledesma, because he was an opposition mayor, the federal government, the federal regime, uh, did its utmost to block Smolansky's access to resources that he could use for programs like uh, his anti-crime agenda. So what he did was he got innovative and he started finding ways, for example, to hook up uh, the local citizenry with local police on social media so that they could better communicate about what was going on in neighborhoods, et cetera. And that helped bring down crime rates uh, for felonies like uh, murder and kidnapping. We were able to have a municipality of zero homicides for 100 days. The regime went completely nuts because people will see the difference between good governance and bad governance. So this young, charismatic leader comes into office and he starts enacting reforms that seem to be pretty effective. And that puts him on the regime's radar because if the opposition style of government works, it suggests maybe the central government doesn't single-handedly hold all the answers to every problem facing Venezuela. Exactly. And that makes Smolansky a big target. So the regime starts becoming critical of opposition leaders like Smolansky and starts moving against them. And how important in this period of time was the position of a mayor or municipal governments in combating the socialist regime that really, by that point, ruled the entire country. Well, here's how Smolansky put it in his conversation with me. From those years of Chavismo, the main leaders against the regime it came from local governments. It, it was one of the most important spaces that we had for resistance and democracy in Venezuela. So that is why I was persecuted. At that time, around 2014, uh, there were huge protests against the Maduro regime that were beginning to erupt and really sweep uh, the country. And these protests tended to spark up in places where opposition leaders had local control, like Smolansky in that Caracas borough of El Latillo. And what happens to Mayor Smolansky as his municipality becomes a hotspot for these anti-government protests? Not good things. Maduro starts ordering the arrest of opposition mayors who refuse to stop these protests on their local streets. Here's Smolansky in 2017 telling a TV news show by phone that his, quote, number has come up for the guillotine. 
So Smolansky has to flee Venezuela and he escapes over the border into Brazil. I had to pass through 35 military checkpoints. I shaved my beard, I used glasses, and I put a flat hat. And Smolansky also went disguised as a Catholic seminarian, an outfit that he had actually prepared months in advance because he knew this was coming. So it seems like coming after local mayors of the opposition party is something like a pattern in a place like Venezuela. It's absolutely a pattern. I think the local government is over in Venezuela. It was completely destroyed in 2017. So now we flash forward to 2020. The police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and Breonna Taylor in Louisville spark unprecedented protests in cities across the country, including here in Florida. And along with these protests comes the idea of defunding the police, which basically means taking money that would have gone to the police and putting it somewhere else to like social services, mental health services, homeless services, something other than armed police officers. And the reason that some people are pushing this is because they see those other services as dealing with the root problem of some of the societal issues while removing the prospect of someone being shot and killed in the process. That's right. A lot of debate about whether that's a good thing or not, but a debate is happening. And then Governor Ron DeSantis calls a press conference in September saying that he's going to do something about any threat to defund the police in Florida. Uh, That is going to put the community at risk. It will absolutely do that. And so for us as the state, there has to be consequences to that. And, you know, yes, there'll be an election and eventually, but um, that's not that's small comfort for people in the intervening time. So there, I think there needs to be an immediate um, amount of accountability. And so, so I think and there's a lot of strong opinions on the law that came out of this proposal, which was described by lawmakers as being an anti-riot bill. But I want to narrow down our focus here on just one particular part of it. The law lets Governor DeSantis and the Florida cabinet override decisions about police budgets that are made by local governments. Right. If any city reduces the police budget or uses law enforcement resources in a way the state decides is defunding police, the state government could overrule them. They could force local government to do things the people who voted for those local governments don't want them to do. And in Florida, that likely means blocking things that more democratic, more progressive cities and counties in the state are trying to do. Uh, For example, there's one city in Florida that's already taken some steps that could be considered defunding the police. And that's the city of St. Petersburg. So last year during these protests and demonstrations, the city of St. Petersburg had a pot of about $850,000 they were planning to use to hire new police officers. But after hearing from protesters in the community, the city decided to use that money to hire mental health workers instead. And those mental health workers would start responding to some emergency calls, especially to calls that involve someone in a mental health crisis. And I recently talked with city council member Darden Rice about why the city made that decision. There's some types of mental breaks that just really go beyond what a family can always endure or handle safely. So we don't want the the police response to be one and done either. The 
by bringing a, a trained mental health professional with them, it actually can help connect that individual and the family to wrap around services where they can get the ongoing need that they, that they, that they need and that they deserve. And it's a type of response that simply, you know, uh, an armed policeman showing up at the door is not necessarily going to solve. The way policing has worked for a long time in the U.S. is that armed police officers are the ones that respond to those calls. And we now know from study after study that people with mental health issues are disproportionately the people who end up being shot and killed by police, often when they're in the middle of a mental health crisis situation. We recognize that as we see a lot of the uh, social fabric and the social safety net erode, if you will, it puts a lot more pressure on our police officers to respond to any type of call. And frankly, it's outside of their training or it's outside of their jurisdiction. It puts a lot of pressure on our police officers. So this is a way that we can help be a little smarter and a little more efficient to let police do the job that they're really trained to do. But for the people in our community that need a different type of assistance, we're trying to do our best to provide um, a service call to them that they really deserve, that is a better fit for their needs. And this program just launched in January of this year. And now these mental health workers are responding to a lot of these 911 calls instead of the armed police. And the interesting thing about this program is that Every bill, when it's in the Florida legislature, has a staff analysis that makes what's supposed to be a nonpartisan evaluation about what exactly the bill would do when it becomes law. And this program in St. Petersburg was explicitly called out in that staff analysis at the Florida legislature as something that could never happen again after this becomes law, which now it is law. So the governor could essentially decide, no, we don't like what St. Petersburg's doing. They can't hire mental health workers with money from the police budget. And this prospect really alarms some local officials like council member Darden Rice, who I will mention is running for mayor of St. Petersburg. My fear is that a law like this could really undermine public trust in our local institutions. I don't want to see people get cynical or develop a negative attitude towards our police in our city because um, so many decisions about the budget end up getting caught up in the bureaucracy of the state government in Tallahassee. And then it becomes part of a process where people maybe aren't necessarily looking out for what's best for St. Petersburg. This most definitely is intended to have a chilling effect on any city who would want the flexibility to approach police work in a different way. And I don't mean a wholesale radical changing of police. I mean, even a program. And I should mention here, Danny, that ironically, this has been one of the issues in Venezuela too. Remember the opposition mayor of Caracas, Antonio Ledesma? He also wanted to divert some of Caracas's law enforcement budget to fund more social service elements to get at the root causes of crime. In the case of Venezuela, the socialist regime didn't want a more conservative leader looking more socially conscious than they were, so they blocked him. But the result was the same. This is going after like one of our core duties, core responsibilities. What, I mean, 
The budgeting process and overseeing public safety are the two biggest responsibilities of local government and local elected officials. So this shackles our hands and, and just really ties us to a, a bureaucratic, arbitrary process. It introduces politics where politics doesn't belong. And this is probably one of the worst overreaches of power I've seen in a very long time. And I can tell you, our local citizens will not benefit from this. Police unions love this law. Um, recently, I talked with John Kazanjian about this. He's the president of the Florida Police Benevolent Association, a police union which represents about 30,000 police officers across the state. And he is a big proponent of the law. He told me that the governor must have been reading his mind when they came up with this. Thank God we live in Florida because uh, de- defunding the police is abs- an absolutely a bad idea. If you start slashing the police budget and you start getting rid of police and their resources and things like that, crime's going to spike. The only people that are going to suffer are the citizens of the state of Florida, not the unions. I mean, the unions will, will survive. It's just you got to protect the people and the citizens of the state of Florida. So on the one hand, they're making a public safety argument about this, that if you cut police budgets, that crime is going to go up. But there's also a practical political reason that they support it. Uh, Police unions often have battles with local governments about getting raises, about overtime, about public pensions. And now they're looking at this law as a way to potentially completely sidestep the local government and go to Tallahassee to solve their problems whenever they might arise. You can see some candidates right now running for some of these positions, and they got some... uh far out ideas, whether it's defunding the police, you know, whether you're a liberal or you're, or you're conservative, they got some wild things also where they want to take our pensions away and things like that. So thank God, you know, the governor could intervene and, and stop all that. And yes, you did hear that right. The governor will even be able to override local governments on things like police pensions, which if you've ever followed local government is always a huge fight. So it's basically a takeover of local government. Right. When Governor Ron DeSantis signed the bill into law in April, he told the far-right news outlet Breitbart his new veto powers draw a, quote, line in the sand for Florida when it comes to defunding the police. He also threw an explicit jab at who those new powers would be aimed at. He said, quote, the more blue an area is, the worse it's governed, end quote. And you take those two things together and it becomes pretty explicit that this is about taking local decision-making power away from more democratic cities, which means the opposition in the state of Florida. And here is Governor DeSantis speaking at the signing ceremony for that law. It tackles head-on this idea that we've seen last summer and then we still see today uh, that there should be a movement to defund law enforcement. Now, obviously, the state of Florida, we're not going to do that under under my leadership. But if a local government were to do that, uh, that would be catastrophic and have terrible consequences uh, for their citizens. And so this bill actually prevents against 
local governments defunding law enforcement. We'll be able to stop it at the state level. And if you look at some of these places that have done this, they've already seen crime go up, even just diverting some of the funding uh, to this. And so it's an insane theory. Uh, it's not going to be allowed to ever carry the day in the state of Florida. And this tool, this bill gives us the tools to make sure that that doesn't happen. I will say that overall crime has gone down across the country over the last year. But at the same time, some violent crimes have gone up. And that's pretty much the case across the whole country, not just in places that have cut police budgets. I think one of the big issues here will be whether or not this law holds up in a state constitutional context. I think the state Supreme Court is going to be asked by a lot of the people who object to this law to rule on whether the state government can cross this line and intervene in local government authority the way uh, it allows it to. And then the other big question is, what's the purpose of a municipality creating a charter uh, to become a, a local government in the first place, if this can happen? Tim, you've done a lot of reporting on Venezuela and Latin America. What do Latin America watchers say about this kind of move from DeSantis, which could strip some power from the governor's political opposition? Well, no one is saying DeSantis is Hugo Chavez, but experts who watch both countries like Venezuela and state governments like Florida, they admit they're alarmed at this because they do feel that, as you have just pointed out, there is a political component to trying to squash the authorities of local governments, because as you point out, you're essentially not just squashing local government powers, you're squashing the ability of your political opposition to exercise its local government authority. And this is one of the things that makes people draw those parallels or comparisons with what has happened in Venezuela, not just in Florida, but in, in states like neighboring Georgia, whose election law that was recently passed, which would allow the state government there, the Republican-controlled state government there, to intervene in local election administration, which is unprecedented. That sort of thing is also drawing comparisons with countries like Venezuela. Jennifer McCoy is a political scientist at Georgia State University, but she's also an expert on Venezuela. In fact, uh, during the first two decades of this century, she was with the international nonprofit Carter Center, and she helped mediate political conflicts in Venezuela. These are examples that are looking similar. A party in power trying to beat back opposing parties by intervening in the, the administration, in the legal authorities of local level offices. And McCoy points out this kind of thing is not just the playbook in Venezuela or Latin America if it's taken too far. For example, she points out President Erdogan in Turkey has removed mayors of the opposition from office. Prime Minister Orban in Hungary has taken steps to remove power and remove funding from opposition mayors who run cities like Budapest. And both these countries, Turkey and Hungary, are pretty universally acknowledged at this point as becoming less and less democratic as the years go on. Exactly. And, and there's a kind of a formula to it. You want to take total control of a country, at some point you're going to have to go after local governments. And that is so often a process that's followed because, frankly, as Amherst College political scientist Javier Corrales reminds us, it's relatively easy to do. 
It's not surprising to see governors become agents in this process of democratic backsliding. It is always easier to undermine the institutions that safeguard democracy at the local level. Tim, thanks for coming on to talk about this. Enjoyed it, Danny. Thanks. Tim Padgett is the America's editor for WLRN. Tallahassee Takeover is a production of WLRN News. This episode was reported and produced by Tim Padgett and me, Danny Rivero. It's edited by Lance Dixon and Alicia Zuckerman. Our engineer is Merritt Jacob. I'm Danny Rivero. We'll see you next time.